Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to speak with Victor Zicho, a 26-year-old Hungarian citizen that is currently cycling around the world on a recumbent bike. Not just your everyday adventure, Victor combines his favorite pastimes of photography, climbing, and traveling into one amazing lifestyle. Victor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christopher. Thanks for the opportunity. No worries. Why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself or, or a lot about yourself as, as you may wish. Uh, yeah, as you said, I, I just link my maniac passion at things, the climbing, photography and cycling in, in one, one big thing. And uh, this is real, real my life. And uh, I think traveling by bicycle is the best method to, to look to visit the world, to, to travel the world, because it's not too slow and not too fast, it's just like optimal. And you know, I grew up on my bike. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say that I was riding my bike uh, in all my childhood and uh, I was mountain biking, I was road biking, yeah. and I involved in a bike traveler community in my hometown. And they introduced me how, what is a long distance bike trip how old were you at that time i was uh i was 12 oh wow when i involved in this bike uh bike touring team and we made uh, several trips in europe and uh, i just fell in love with the uh, tour cycling but later i just went to university i started living in the capital of hungary in mm-hmm. budapest so we did not make trips together with this community, so I made it alone. And sometimes there were some friends who joined me. And yeah, the the world opened, you know, university life. So I just wanted to to get out of Europe, mm-hmm. and I made my first uh, bike trip out of Europe in 2014 when I was 21 years old. Okay. And I could involve my friends, and so we went. We went two guys to to the Mount Ararat, to the ah. east part of Turkey, to the very east part of Turkey, which was like 3,600 kilometers bike trip. 
and it took about six weeks. And in the end, uh, we climbed the Mount Ararat, which is uh, which is a pretty tall mountain. It was kind of tall mountain for me. I have never climbed over five thousand meter. Wow. Yeah. So so that's it uh, mostly. And now I'm on a bike trip. Have a fourteen thousand kilometer from Hungary to northeast India. Okay, and um, when you cycled in two thousand fourteen, it was uh, just you and one other friend that went to the eastern part of Turkey. Yeah, that's right. It was one other friend. Did you cycle both ways? So you cycled there, climbed a mountain, and then cycled home. I uh, know. Actually, uh, we had to go back to school. We had to go oh, back okay. to university. It was. Uh, start of the year. Finally, we used the buses and ferries and trains. It was also a great adventure to oh. go through Turkey in, with via these uh, transportation methods. Mm-hmm. And um, where are you? Where are you from in Hungary? I come from Komárom, which is a smaller town populated by twenty thousand people. Okay, it's about one hour drive far from the capital. Oh, okay, so it's not too too far. Huh? Yeah, by bike, I usually make it in four or five hours. Nice. I like that you got a, you got you have an estimate there. <laughs> what was your motivation to do this bike tour to uh, to India, and why did you choose to go by bike? I mean, I guess I kind of you kind of mentioned that it's the the good pace. Yeah, I was already thinking about this bike trip when I I descended from the Mount Ararat. Mm-hmm. The thing is that I read a book of uh, Alexander Tuma, who is a very famous language researcher from Hungary. So he is a, he's a man who decided to spend his life with making researches about the Hungarian language. Oh, okay. Hungarian language, Hungarian language is kind of a unique mm-hmm. language in Europe. You cannot really compare to any other languages. So I've heard there's some 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 links to uh, Finnish and Estonian as well as Korean, but I don't know. Like that's what I've heard. Uh, yeah, there are some links. Uh, that's right. That's right. But two hundred two hundred years ago, we did not really know too many things about this language origins. Mm-hmm. And uh, this professor Choma uh, Shandor, so Alexander the Choma. He decided to make researches, so he traveled to to Middle Asia. His aim was to to get to West Mongolia or Northwest China, because uh, according to his informations, that could be the origin okay. of, of our language. So that was his his uh, destination, but he could not go there. He had to turn back around uh, Bukhara which is right now in Uzbekistan. He had to turn southeast. Uh, he ended up in Islamabad, and then uh, he tried to go again north from Islamabad, so he went to Kashmir and Ladakh. Okay. And from Ladakh, he tried to go through again, through China. But no, he, he never succeeded, so he stayed in, in West Tibet, which is Ladakh, and he spent several years there. And uh, finally, he ended up making researches about the Tibetan language. Oh, cool. He was really interested about this language, too, because he was expecting that he will find some uh, links, some relations to the Hungarian language. 
Finally, he wrote a dictionary about the Tibetan language. So he was the first man who to write a Tibetan English dictionary. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. That was his career, actually. And uh, he spent maybe seven years in uh, Ladakh. Mm -hmm. And then he continued researches in Kolkata. And he started his trip exactly 200 years ago. It was 1819. Ah, so this is kind of like uh, along the same lines he went and kind of experienced what he might have experienced, right? Yeah, so I am following his route. As I can cover, you know, there are places where I, ca I cannot go and I cannot go through. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, of course, he might have just crossed a border where there's no border crossing now and you, you yeah, now yeah. you have to go through illegal crossing. So, of course, you have to like... Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, why did you decide to use a recumbent bike? Have you been riding recumbents for a long time? Or is it like somebody just put the idea in your head or what happened here? Yeah, first uh, I get these two friends from Hungary who made their honeymoon mm -hmm. by recumbent bikes, which lasted four years long and uh, they traveled um, most of the continents. Yeah, they just, um, they just loved it and... I also had an injury, which makes me uncomfortable on a normal bike in a very, very long distance. Okay. So I tried, I tried recumbent uh, when when I had this injury, and yeah, it it solved my problems. So it became my best mate on long distances. Okay. What kind of recumbent bike are you using? Well, this is uh, an M5 from the Netherlands, okay. which uh, which is kind of adopted and uh, not not adopted, how to say. There are there are some changes, modifications on on this bicycle as uh, it has got different different gears from the original M5, oh, okay. and also different wheels and bar, different steering. Yeah, yeah. The gearing, I assume, is so you can climb big mountains, right? Because in the Netherlands, they don't have big mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. And your it's a short wheelbase, I believe, right? So your feet are out past the front wheel? Yeah. It, there's there's not such a big distance between the mm -hmm. wheels. And uh, when when it's not loaded, when it goes without the bags, uh, the center of gravity it's is like over the front wheel. Okay. But now uh, I use the rear rack. Mm-hmm. And actually, all the weight is over the rear wheel. So right now, the center of gravity when I'm riding this bike is somewhere, somewhere over the rear wheel, just like about one feet far from the axle. Okay. In direction front wheel. What what size of wheels does uh, your uh, recumbent bike use? Twenty six. The twenty six inch wheels. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw in a video when you were trying to cycle through a stream that, uh, yeah, when you when you had to, like, put your feet down, you were just basically, you were kind of, like, at full extension, right? Like, if you had 20-inch wheels, you'd be much lower, and but you were you were pretty high up. It's not like you're, you're yeah. so close to yeah, the ground. Yeah. I'm pretty high up, so it's not that stable, but uh, the wheels can uh, roll easier on tough ground. Right. I think I would have, I would have, struggled with uh 20 inch wheels here yeah i imagine you would have was it difficult to learn to ride a recumbent no not at all no i i went to a bike shop in hungary mm -hmm. which has several different recumbents and uh, they gave me 
Uh, first, those recommends which have the crank set pretty low and the seat pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, first, I tried that, and then I tried this type. So it was pretty easy in this way. Okay. Yours is an over-steering, right? Instead of like the under-the-seat type steering? Yes, over-steering. It's, it's much better for these conditions because I have to push the bike uh, a lot of times. Right, yeah. And yeah. also... If it's under seat and something happens, you bang it or something, easy to break yeah. and cause real damage, yeah? Yeah, yeah that's right. What, uh, what's it like to ride a recumbent? I mean, what are some of the advantages? Advantages of a recumbent? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not faster, actually, but uh, it's much more comfortable. So I can ride this bike every day. I don't have to stop uh, because of pain in my nice. bottom and, and stuff. <laughs> So if I want to ride one week long without stop, I can ride. I can ride one week uh, for sure. And uh, of course, the look of the bike is also an advantage. So if, How so? If I want to really get involved in a conversation with locals everywhere around the world, it, it just works out. <laughs> it works easily. Yes, I mean, it stands out, right? It's a very different style of bike. So Very different. Yeah, even in Europe, there's a lot of places where people just have never seen such a bike. So it's easy to to involve in conversations and make new friends. And uh, yeah, it's people just love it. People just love this kind of bicycle. Okay, it can be also disturbing. For example, in uh, uh, Iran, I had uh, some cases when there were maybe thirty people making a round <laughs> over me, and then I just could not move from there. <laughs> it was very funny. They just didn't, didn't let me because they they wanted to stare at me longer and longer. Yeah, yeah. yeah for example, Persian people are very good in staring. You're just, just watching and staring things that are new for them, and <laughs> sometimes I was just stuck in a place because of people just did not let me out of the ring. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to Iran a few times, and it's lovely, but uh, I wasn't cycling there, so I, I didn't get quite that experience. Um, I guess it's also a bit of a deterrent for theft, right? Because there's a little bit of a learning curve to riding a recumbent. It's unlikely somebody's going to jump on your bike and try to ride it away on you. Yeah, well, uh, when I was riding my bike first time, I rode it without bags. I rode just on simply, simply low-traffic roads mm -hmm. in Hungary. Yeah, and then I entered the cities, I entered Budapest, the capital, and then it became uh, part of my everyday life. Ah. And uh, I started commuting with this bicycle to work, and uh, I found out it's not a bad, not a bad uh, vehicle for everyday transport in the city, in big traffic. Oh, yeah? Cool. I can, I can balance it very, very good. Yeah. So, after that, I used to city traffic. I did. I was not afraid of putting big bags on it and uh, and start riding, uh, heading towards Asia. And uh, how is it with climbing mountains? I mean, I mean, you're, you're climbing some really big mountains, but um, how is it like? I mean, you've ridden normal bikes, triangle bikes, or diamond frame they call them. Uh, how is it different on a recumbent? I uh, I don't like it. <laughs> to be honest, I don't like uh, climbing with this recumbent. Well, you, I can do it. So I have mountain bike gears, so mm -hmm. 20, 22 teeth on the front, 
34 teeth in the rear. There's oh, the, wow. There's the highest gear. It's like a standard nine-speed mountain bike set. And, you know, I can't ride... I can ride as steep as 10%, 12% uh, steep slopes. Yeah. But over 15, I always get off. Okay. I always get off the bike and push it. So that's the way. Sometimes... uh, I've heard, like, some some people say, like, climbing on a recumbent is just as easy or fast as a a normal road bike um, because you can, like, push your back into it a bit more and stuff, but... I don't know. I imagine it's it's also not easy. Um, no, I would not say not as easy. Okay. If I'm always uh, one kilometer per hour slower than uh, than regular bu- bike tourers. Oh, good to know. Even those who have uh, bigger gear, bigger weight on the bike, I'm traveling with about 55 kilograms uh, bags, mm-hmm. and my bike is about 20, 25 kilograms itself with the rack and and some accessories yeah so it's over no it's totally like 80 kilograms wow your bike is like your bike's like 25 kilos yeah it's a chromolybdenum frame okay. there's generate hub generator on it and yeah, uh, yeah the rack is made of steel uh, so yeah and there, there are some accessories also so Totally, it's like, yeah, more than 20. I just did not measure properly, but... Fair enough. More than 20, for sure. And um, how many bags do you carry on it? Because I know like, you don't have the option of front panniers on a recumbent bike, but I know the back yeah. panniers can be pretty big. So what do you, what kind of bags do you use? Yeah, I use uh, the biggest Ortley panniers on the two sides, which is totally 70 liter. Okay. 35 liter each. I got... A stock M5 middle bag, center bag. Okay. Which is, which might be around 10 liters. Yeah. And uh, I have also a backpack attached on the top of this setup. Oh, wow. Yeah. I carry the smallest weight things in this backpack so that it's, it can be attached uh, like tightly and, and mm-hmm. it's not moving too much. Okay, so that's you got quite a lot of weight in there. What I would like to know is what advice could you give other people if they're considering to tour on a recumbent? Be patient. Be patient. <laughs> Have a good sense of humor. Be patient, <laughs> Be patient uphill and enjoy the downhill so 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 much because wow, that's that's another dimension. Going downhill by recumbent bikes, <laughs> it's crazy. And another. I think if people go to Asia by recommend bike, mm-hmm. I think it would be very, really handy to get some front suspension because I, I don't have suspension in the front okay. and uh, I was missing it. Or at least at least a fat tire in the front. Ah. Yeah, I use the Racing Rolf, Schwab Racing Rolf yep. uh, on this uh, last thousand kilometer mud road. And dirt road, it was 2.25 inch. It was not enough. Oh, really? And was that on the front and back? But I, I think I saw in a, one of the videos you have like a knobby tire on the back, but a slick on, like a like a touring type tire on the front. Yeah, yeah. I used Schwab Marathon for the 
asphalted roads. Okay. And I used the racing roughs for the dirt roads from uh, the capital of Tajikistan until Chitra, Chitra, which is in Pakistan. Okay. How much did it cost you to get ready to go for this tour? Like just to get your bikes, bags, equipment, all that stuff. Okay. Well, I had a lot of equipment previously. Okay. So I'm I'm a mountaineer and I have every camping stuff, almost every. So yeah, I had to buy a, ga- a gas cooker mm-hmm. and I had to buy these panniers. And a bike. Okay. Maybe nothing else for this trip. Oh, nice. So it did not cost too much. Like it was costed about 400 bucks. 400 US dollar, yeah. Perfect. How about your bike? How much did it cost? The bike costs, I think, 2,000 euro. Oh, okay. Yeah, 2,000 euro. Did you have any any sponsors at all, or is it all just done on your own? Well, I have supporters. I have three supporting companies right now, and uh, they cover about third of the expenses, third of the total expenses. I try to reduce expenses, so... I'm not staying too much in hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think totally I stayed in hotels and and hostels 12 or 13 days on this trip, which has been already lasting like five and a half months. Ah, okay. So the rest, rest I was camping, bivouacking, and uh, couch surfing and using warm showers. Perfect. And uh, how did you get sponsors? Like. Was it just a matter of reaching out to companies or was it like through through contacts you had already for, through your mountaineering and stuff? Yeah, through contacts I had already. In my hometown, I have pretty good contacts uh, who know many companies and those contacts know who is into cycling amongst the the company owners. So there are some people, some, some company owners who really love cycling and they, they could be commies very easily. So that was the way. That's the way to do it. So there's some advice there. It's it's. It, I think it's a lot more than approaching companies for sponsorships. It's about having a connection, somebody that knows somebody, because I think that, that human connection makes it easier. It's way easier. Yes. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the tour. Well, we know you started in Hungary. Your ultimate uh, destination, I guess, is somewhere in India, right? Right. I enjoyed when you mentioned that you crossed the, the Danube in Bulgaria, that it would be the last time you see this river for a while. How did it make you feel knowing you were leaving the comfort zone of Eastern Europe? Maybe it feels very, very, very good. Oh, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Huh? It's a very good feeling. Yeah. Jumping into new adventures, jumping into the unknown. Yeah. That's, that's such a, such an amazing feeling for me. I love it. And, uh, you know, I've been to Turkey mm-hmm. uh, two times before this, so it was still not the point where, where it was really new adventure, but it was, yeah, already already out of comfort zone for sure. Okay. Is there a big contrast between, I mean, obviously there's a big contrast between Eastern Europe and Turkey, but um, is it even noticeable on the... The European side of Turkey, like when you first enter Turkey, you're like, wow, this is different? Or is it more on the Asian side? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I have to say that uh, everything is different. Uh, when you enter Turkey, it just, it just shocks 
it just shocks you because Bulgaria, from, from where you enter Bulgaria mm-hmm. and Turkish border, you just cross and in, a, in the first village or, or city where you enter, you see an, an enormous difference. Really? Like, yeah, totally, totally. Um, first, people are different, so they are more smiley, I, I have to be honest. Yeah. And uh, in the street, it's more Asia-like. Like, it's more crowded. There are people out in the street, mm-hmm. everywhere, everywhere, and uh, you know there you, you can see the mosques, and the architecture is also different, and every every th- single thing forces you to eat, 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 eat <laughs> out. out. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In Turkey, you cannot get rid of eating. You you have, you have to eat everywhere. Oh, okay. That's that's kind of message that Turkey says in in every street, in every town, in every village. Uh, what was your route through Turkey? Did you go down onto the Mediterranean, or were you more up towards the Black Sea as you cycled through? I used the South Road, so I went directly to Antalya from Istanbul. Okay, and then I I used the South Road all the way along the Mediterranean. And yeah, I cooked myself and fried myself 10 times over there because I was there in July. Ah, and you were doing some climbing in the south of Turkey, yeah? I think that was near Antalya. Yeah, yeah. yeah I met a warm, warm showers man from uh, California. <laughs> there is a man, uh, Brian, I don't know exactly. Brian Kate, yeah, Brian Kate. And uh, he, he lives now in Antalya. Okay. He's a super cool man. And uh, I just wrote to him and just texted him and Momshawas, and it turned out he's also a rock climber. Oh. And we went deep water soloing in the south, in the south of Turkey. So just, just right in, in Antalya, there are rocks, there are cliffs. Yeah. Where you can climb without any belaying, any protection. Just go for the rocks and they are overhang. There's oh, deep cool. water under yourself, and you can just jump anytime. You can fall anytime from the rock, so it's pretty safe, and, and uh, it's real joy. I love this type of climbing. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and is it hard to climb, though, when your hands are all wet and stuff from the water? Yeah. So when you get out of the water, you usually have to dry your, oh, okay. your uh, hands. But usually we, we just try not falling. We just do traversing and... And when it's really necessary, then we fall. Ah. Uh, and um, where else did you go in Turkey? So you were cycling along the south, and then you just headed towards Iran, or did you... Is that it? No, or? no, no. I headed towards in the south, so... After I left the coastline, I went to Gaziantep and Şanlıurfa. Mm-hmm. And Şanlıurfa was a very important stop for me, because... That was the first common point with the route of Alexander Chuma. Oh, okay. As he he was uh, sailing on the Mediterranean from Greece to to Syria. Okay. So gotcha. he did not use the he did did not use the land route. He used the ships to to get to uh, Syria, because in that time there was. Uh, so there was a plague disease hitting Turkey that time. So he had to avoid to survive, actually. And that's why he, 
he used the the ships to to get to Syria, and from Syria he headed north northeast, mm-hmm. and Shan Urfa was the first point where where I met his route again after Hungary, and then from this point I was following his route all the way, ah, almost all the way. Well, uh, I went more east, heading Mardin and uh, to the Iraq border, and I entered Iraq. Did you? How uh, yeah. was it? Diff- I thought you did, but I wasn't sure because I didn't see too many pictures. But was it difficult to enter Iraq? Not at all. No. Oh wow! I expected no. it would have been. No, it was. I even didn't need a visa, so they just gave me a stamp and I could go. And everybody said it's hundred uh, percent secure if I stay in the Kurdish areas. Okay. And, and yeah, it was. It was good, you know. Oh, that's why when I saw your pictures and you mentioned Kurdistan, you were in the Iraqi yeah. Kurdistan, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Ah. Yeah, so I didn't go to Mosul and Baghdad. Mm-hmm. I missed Mosul and Baghdad itself because visa would have been difficult to get. And also people said that it's not, they are not good places to visit. I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, it's life dangerous. It's life and injured if I if I go there. Yeah. So finally, I, I just went to Erbil and Suleimania. Okay, what was your experience like in um, in in Kurdistan? In Kurdistan, my experience. Wow, people are lovely. People are really lovely. I just <laughs> I just felt very very good because everybody uh, just wanted to make me a guest wanted oh, to yeah? accommodate me everybody wanted to invite me for for breakfast for lunch for dinner for every meal people go out eating they are the restaurant eaters so, so they have cheap restaurants mm-hmm. relatively and they can afford it and they always eat out ah okay yeah i think i think most of the people eat out and not in and not at the home, and uh, they just always invited me. I think I did not, I didn't even spend uh, ten dollars during my one week stay in in Kurdistan. Wow, that's a that's a cheap week. Yeah, yeah. And where did you cross into uh, Iran? So from Suleimania, I went uh, east mm-hmm. on the other side of the mountain. There's a border crossing called Marivan. Okay. At Marivan, I, I entered Iran. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So from Benjamin, I think there's the last uh, place in Iraq. I just went. I just went through. I just went through. <laughs> there was a hard border crossing. It was very confusing. You know, these borders are very confusing. You have to. Um, go to several um, offices which are even not on the road so you have to find them and uh, you must show your passport to different people like I think I show my passport only at the exit from Iraq mm-hmm. maybe four times or five times to different people one of the soldiers uh, guards wanted to try my bike 
I insisted. I, I told them that you should not try my bike because it's even hard to ride for me, who is experienced. Yeah. They were really nasty. They they <laughs> wanted to they really wanted to try. So they forced me to get off my bike. One of them sat on my bike and leaned. And, uh, and then my fell bike over. fell to the ground. He fell to the ground. Wow, I, I was really I was really nervous about that. So I just hate this behavior. You're like, I better not start laughing. <laughs> yeah, not, not at all. I, you know, every time when uh, when my bike leans and falls to the ground, I was I'm always afraid of something can break. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and um, after that, I entered the Iranian side, and you know, that's a wonderful place. That's such a wonderful area. This is called the Zagros Mountains. Yeah. Uh, the Zagros Mountains on this borderline going going from northwest to to southeast and I was cycling a lot in this uh, in this border area between Iraq and Iran. Okay, I was already in Iran of course. Yeah. But there are mountain roads and the Iranian side and it's just fabulous. I love this place. I would really recommend cycling there because there's also a big mountain road from from Iran to to Sanandaj, huh? Uh no, I did not no? took that way. I went really on the border. So I went uh, up on the really high path, mm-hmm. almost as high as uh, Stelvio, and uh, I descended to Pave in direction. Oh, yeah. Okay, going south. Yeah, yeah that mountain pass is over 2,600 meters. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was my first really high pass in this journey. And uh, I was camping uh, also almost in this altitude. I saw the lights of Iraq from there. It was lovely. I could I could make uh, multiple Milky Way shots, which you can also see on the Instagram. That was uh, that was done in Iran, yeah. Those Milky Way shots. Yeah, yeah. One of the Milky Way shots was in Iraq, okay. where I was bordering a lot on sandstones, and it was no light pollution. Mm-hmm. There was also the side of the Zagros Mountains, and the other Milky Way shot was in Iran. Okay. Uh, when you got down to Kermanshah, is that when you, you kind of, where did you go from there? You started heading east, northeast kind of direction towards Tehran? Or? Yeah, from Kermanshah, I, I just took the highway to Tehran directly. Okay. I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry that time. The reason of my hurry was uh, I had an appointment with one friend of mine mm-hmm. who was supposed to come climbing to Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Ah, okay. So you yeah. had to make sure you get there at the right time. So I had this appointment to get there at the right time, and uh, I wanted to to go fast, not to make him wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know he still haven't bought the flight flight tickets. Uh, we it was not hundred percent sure that he's coming, and yeah, you know finally he did not come. <laughs> oh no! That was the the sad thing about it. So yeah, I was in a hurry, and uh, I just took the highway. I, I rode hundred twenty kilometers every day. So I was riding all the day in the hot summer. <laughs> yeah, it would have been yeah, really hot. It, too. it was, it was a, a fortful ride. And uh, I did not like this place, Severan. It's, uh, people are nasty. People are creepy there. Where was uh, that? Okay, there's a lot of really nice people too. But I met, I met very, very creepy people. Wow. In Iran or? In this part of Iran. Okay. Yeah, right. 
right uh, on the highway from Kermanshah to Tehran. Yeah, you know, of, of course I was pretty tired uh, mm-hmm. sometime, and, and also I had too much hotness. So, yeah, maybe I did not communicate very, very uh, kindly all the time. So, yeah, there was a situation when there was a teenager stopping me in the road when I was going uphill more hours long. Right. I did not really want to stop, so I just, uh, I was not very kind, I think. But yeah, he he was starting to behave very, very aggressive. And, uh, you know, he was touching uh, my bike. He was shouting at my face from one feet. And um, I just did not like it. I said, get off, get out, get out from here, get away. Yeah. And he, and he brought... He brought a machete and he he offended me oh, with wow. a huge machete. And uh, I just got off my bike, got my ice axe. I just told him, "Get the fuck away from here! Get the hell away from here!" And um, you know, I just did not swing my ice axe. I just stopped in the one place, and yeah. yeah, it was a situation. It was a really nasty situation. Wow, that's insane! I think even like I know a lot of Iranians, and I think many people would be shocked. At- that person's behavior right like but yeah i mean definitely it's got to be an exception to the average person but yeah the other other thing was the same day i wanted to do wild camping in a abandoned area mm-hmm. i thought it was abandoned but not i was it was totally dark dark already just wanted to get far from the highway as it was very noisy yeah yeah rainy nights are busy years. They honk too much. Yeah, they just honk too much, and uh, even even one kilometer from the highway, you, you just cannot sleep. So I wanted to get far from the highway, and uh, I set up my tent. I wanted to set up my tent in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I think it was just just a big, big, big farm, and there was a man coming in the darkness, and he he brought he brought some. A big wood stick. Okay. A big stick. And he was swinging it and he was shouting at me. I said, what the hell are you doing, man? I'm just, I just want, I just want to camp here. <laughs> and I don't know why. He drove me. He, he guided me to another place. Okay. Which was, again, very close to the road. So we did not have a common language and they just said, okay, good. Okay, okay. I just wanted him to get lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, it was not very sympathetic. So he said I should camp there, but of course I did not camp there. I went back to the same place where where he came for me. And uh, when I went back, he he came again from I don't know where. I don't know <laughs> how he. I don't know how he saw me. Uh, he just came from the darkness again without a light with his big stick and he started to swing it again and, uh, it was wow and it was creepy <laughs> it was really creepy so yeah i just uh... before continuing on with the podcast i just want to thank some of the bike tour adventures sponsors bike tour adventures is proudly sponsored by redshift sports Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. 
I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magna in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. And where were you at the time? Were you there on the way to Tehran still? Yeah, on the way to Tehran. I just rolled my bike again, changed the place. Damn. Rode, rode back to the roads, rode further. Did your time in Iran improve once you got off this highway and got a little bit anywhere else? Yeah. It was like one hour just to find a correct camping spot. Okay. Yeah. There was another spot in another garden. And, you know, people found me again. I was not even using lights, but people found me again. But those were nice people they they brought me uh, some grapes and then blankets because they were afraid that i will freeze at night oh wow yeah so that was also a very nice experience in the morning they brought me fried eggs so they were cool people oh nice yeah and where did you go after tehran did you head north up towards uh the the caspian sea or towards mashad to the east i went north to the caspian Sea. you went north first yeah yeah just another experience. Uh, maybe it's interesting for you. This just another experience. Mm-hmm. Before Tehran, I was riding my bike, and it was an abandoned road. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was not too much traffic on it. There were three guys on one motorbike. Teenagers stop stop down together. I thought that they want to uh, have a conversation as always, and uh, right at the moment when we stopped. They grabbed my camera out of my bag because the strap of my camera was hanging out from my bag. It was not closed, unfortunately. And they started playing with me, you know? They said it was almost fallen out. So they they rescued the camera. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. I did not believe them, but I started to fool around and play with them because they started playing the interesting that... No, they started... uh, Playing that uh, we are making pictures and selfies and stuff. And uh, yeah, we took some photos and then they invited me to get out of the road on the fields. So I was sure that there's a trap. So I asked them kindly to give me back the camera. Of course, they did not. So I forced them and I could get back the camera. Yeah. The funny thing is that I could get it back, but the other guy from my back, he he showed me his swings, his swinger knife, um, a big knife and um, kind of basher's knife. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, of course, I I became very nervous and I swing my ice axe. I was shouting at them, and they were very afraid of me. And, they got very afraid and scared of me, and, and they <laughs> ran away. It's a good thing he got that ice axe. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, I would recommend everybody to travel with ice axe because it's the biggest and uh, most serious uh, weapon that you can uh, that you can travel with. You can pass any borders with an ice axe because it's just a climbing equipment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. These these were the the best situation is in Iran in this part of Iran. But yeah, after that, I had very, very nice experiences. Good. Tell us about some of the good experiences so we end Iran on a good note. <laughs> wow. I had an interview in Iraq with an Iranian channel. Oh, okay. And Iran International. And they broadcasted uh, this interview when I was in Tehran. So it was about... 10 days editing after after I left uh, Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, and they broadcasted even on BBC Persia. Oh, that's cool. And then they, I just became famous. <laughs> <laughs> I just became famous. And uh, people watched me on the street. Okay, everybody was already watching, but people recognized me when I was riding in the street in Tehran. And uh, I had about... A thousand new followers and a lot of people wrote me when I'm in Tehran. I have to visit them. I, we, they want to invite me to their homes and and they want to show me every every Iranian dishes. Oh wow! So the thing I did in Tehran was going house to house, host to host. Yeah, <laughs> and had good conversations and good meals with good meals with people with the. Uh, Tehran the people they are super nice that is really really cool did you have a yeah. did, did you go up to the north Tehran at all towards uh towards the mountains and uh like the the fancier neighborhoods oh yeah I was also there in the fancy neighborhoods it's pretty yeah, yeah. once I was hosted by two bank employees yeah and they were pretty rich oh nice yeah and uh after Tehran I went to Karaj, which is west. Yeah, it's where my my land. wife's my wife's family's from. Karaj. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They're and from Karaj, I took the Chilas Road. You took Chilas Road, Chalas Road up to up to Chalas, oh, I guess. Man, that road is so amazing. It's beautiful, right? So beautiful. And when I was riding on this road, there were many many people uh, heading north because it was Muharram. Ah. And. Uh, yeah, yeah. First Muharram, and the first and the big day of the Muharram, the main day of the Muharram, I tried sholazard, uh, which became my favorite food in in Iran, and uh, and I was heading north on this road, and everybody stopped down, and uh, they were taking photos with me. I had a time when I stopped down, and there were about five cars stopping down. We took a lot of pictures together. We had good conversations, and I have already had an escort because <laughs> there was a man called uh, there was a man called Hassan, yeah, and uh, he was escorting me because he said he wants to he he sticks to invite me to his mountain house next to um, Kuhe. No, I don't know the name. Sorry. So so he had a mountain, so he had a mountain house before the pass 
Okay. They really wanted to invite me, but it was still 20 kilometers until the point. And uh, he was escorting me all the way. I said, man, you can just go further. You can just go to your place. I, I will find the place and never mind. You, you don't have to escort me. But he really wanted to escort me and uh, he he was he was coming really slow on the road and uh, you know we had, we stopped like 15 times to to take pictures with other drivers with other people and uh, finally we ended up in his house and we had amazing amazing dinner and uh, we had a very very good uh, breakfast too and uh, he said whenever I I come back I have to visit him again. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And then I just uh, finished climbing. I went to the tunnel. But of course, the tunnel was closed. It was one way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the police said that I, I have to go after midnight. So I stayed. I was camping on the top of the mountain, on the top of the road next to the tunnel. Next morning, I started riding. Oh. And uh, I passed the tunnel, and wow, Chalice Road on the north side, the road is perfect. I did not expect this this wonderful uh, quality of the road. And it's old. That that road dates back to like the time of the Shah before Iran became an Islamic Republic. Ah, uh-huh. yeah. So it's kind of old road, but right now it's really it was good. yeah it was it was designed by the the king of Iran as a as a means of going up to going up to the town of Chalice to the sea. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I started riding on it. It was foggy. And uh, I was I was riding without without cranking half day. Man, that was the best downhill experience of my life by this recommended bike. I'm going to ride that one day. <laughs> Guaranteed. They're the best, the best ever because uh, from 2600 meter you drop down to minus 27. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because the Caspian Sea is under the sea level. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a huge drop and almost constant, almost constantly going down. And the road is perfect. And the view, wow. The view was so amazing. I, I was riding about one entire month without seeing a cloud. And here, the clouds shapes and uh, the clouds just settled down on the side of the mountain were, were just beautiful. Yeah, from Chalus, I just headed east. And uh, I had again very, very good host in Sari. Yeah. And uh, they hosted me and uh, we had a very, very good time together. They also wanted to show me the, uh, the cuisine. The they're like local cuisine, the local cuisine, yeah. So we went to two different restaurants, <laughs> and then we went to their home. They they uh, invited me for a cake. So you cannot die of starving in Iran. I, I <laughs> no, no. Every time I go to Iran, I get fat. <laughs> I am hundred percent sure you cannot die of starving. Where did you cross the border into Turkmenistan? Uh, after Mashhad, yeah, I love Mashhad too. I love it, <laughs> and I love Bojnurd. Why well, I, I met I met the 
the nice the nicest guy ever in Bojnovod. Mm. He was Ali, and uh, he invited me to his home. I said I have to go because this friend is going to wait me in Tajikistan. I have a few hours. Okay, we went to his home. It turned out he's a rock climber. Oh no I way! Said, cool. Really awesome. Okay, I have two days. <laughs> I will just I will just uh, catch catch myself back with riding faster, lighter. So we have. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I said, okay, now we have two days. I just want to climb. And he said, okay, let's go climbing. And we went we went to very, very good crack. We were climbing a half day. And he he invited me to several dishes. His wife made Sholazad for me just because I mentioned I love it. Wow, it's crazy. You know, you know when, when I get back from, from the cl- day of rock climbing, yeah. The, his wife just just served the shorazad for me as a surprise. Wow, it's amazing! It's amazing. It's it was like a what? What, what did you say? Is your your favorite food is what? Shorazad in Muharram they serve this on this on the street and it's a yellow porridge stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah, I'm. I love sweet things, you know. <laughs> so there's a way. There's a thing. Yeah. And uh, I spent two days in Bojnud, and then I had in Meshad, and I could, I could not stay alone almost on the road. So people always uh, stopped and gave me dishes on the road. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I even did not buy things. I did not buy food the on the road from from Bojnud to Meshad. And I had about four or five invitations to houses in, in Mashhad. And one of the uh, hosts, one of the potential hosts mm-hmm. was a cyclist and rock climber. So, of course, but I stayed with them and they were super nice too. <laughs> they were really, really nice people. Did you pick up much Persian while you were there? Unfortunately, no. No, but you speak a bit of Turkish, right? I think I got that sense in one of your posts. Yeah, yeah, I speak a little bit Turkish. There's a lot of Iranians that know some Turkish because they watch a lot of Turkish dramas, so it can sometimes <laughs> help you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Turkish helped me in Iran, definitely. Even around Bojno, there are people who speak Turkish, but yeah. in the West, there's a lot. Yeah, the West has there's come. a lot of people. Yeah, I speak Turkish a little bit because it's easy to learn for me. It is it, the Turkish grammar is almost the same as the Hungarian grammar. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, I think one of the Hungarian tribes a few thousand years ago, they were Turks, and we were we lived together with Turks for hun- hundreds of years. And yeah, we have a very similar grammar, and we have a lot of common words. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I really yeah. want to jump forward to Central Asia because I think... Um, Otherwise, we might run out of time. And I think you have, this is where it gets really, really interesting. And um, that's the fact that you you took a really different route through the Pamirs and Central Asia than a lot of other cyclists take. And that's, I mean, I guess in part because you were following the footsteps of this, uh, this uh, historical Hungarian guy. So instead of going up towards uh, Kyrgyzstan, you went down into Afghanistan and Pakistan. Can you tell us about this and what it was like? Oh, yeah, sure. So I was in Korog, 
in, uh, in the south of Tajikistan. I had to get the Afghan visa. I even did not have that. People say that it's the easiest to get the Afghan visa uh, in Khorog. So I decided to get it there. And, you know, my, fan, my friend who was supposed to come to Tajikistan, yeah. well, he declined. So I was just alone in, in Khorog. But I met I met a lot of lot of really good friends in the Pamir Lodge, which is kind of symbol of Korog, I think. Okay. Everybody goes there. I spent two weeks there because this friend of mine uh, was supposed to bring stuff, winter stuff, for me, and uh, finally he had to uh, put it on the mail, and it took a long time. So after I got this mail delivered. I got my uh, stuff for cold season. Mm-hmm. I headed to Ishkashim um, and I passed the Afghan border. And then, uh, you know, um, this professor, Alexander Choma, he was going, he, he went through Kabul. Okay. So he went a little bit west from me, but he, he, also, he, he passed through Afghanistan as me. But he went a little bit more west. Right. So those areas are uh, not not pretty safe right now. Exactly, yeah. Because the Taliban is over there and uh, they have a force over there. And uh, it's not pretty safe to travel by bicycle. So I decided to, to go also through Afghanistan, but in the eastern part of Afghanistan, the Wakhan corridor. Yeah. Yeah, so I entered the Tishkashim, I got all my permissions for the Wakhan, and then I, I just started riding east towards the Little, little Pamirs. Okay, because when I, when I look at the map, I, see, I know that on the Tajik side, they have a lot better, more proper road, but as soon as you get to Ishkashim, uh, yeah. that road on the Afghan border side is not nearly as developed, right? Not nearly a road. It's <laughs> not like, nearly, uh, nearly not even a road? Yeah, that's like trails made by car, oh, I would okay. say. So sometimes you have to you have to go through a big a big pile of stones mm-hmm. where there is some some trail made by cars. And there's no road. I, I would not say that's a road. <laughs> okay. And so you started heading east, right? Up towards Langar and then yeah. following the the river, right? Yeah, following the Pond River, I was cycling five days to Sarhad, which is about 200 kilometers. And yeah, you know, the average was very, very low per day. I was riding very slow. Okay. And uh, that's, that's thanks for the road quality, the, the off-road quality. First, I broke my rear derailleur. Okay. The thread was also uh, damaged in in the frame, and after I broke my mud guards both, yeah, because of uh, because I fall off my fell off my fell off my bike several times, and then I broke my rack, which was made of steel. Oh shit! <laughs> Actually, the the bolts which are holding the ah, rack they, okay. they, they broke down. Yeah. They broke down. I, I should have replaced the bolts, I think, every 4,000 kilometer or 5,000 kilometer. But I did not, so they broke in the frame. 
so I had to figure out some some other uh, attachment system which I I could solve with uh, with the slings and uh, some some ratchet slings yeah okay yeah they, they were, they're working out so I went up to Sarhad which is an incredible place too I, I was like in a in the dreamland in a, in the Lord of the Rings or something really huh? crazy yeah. I don't even see roads that go outside of Sarhad so where do you go from there yeah, because there's no road just okay you know, there's the trail made of cars made by cars so from Sarhad I went south to the Brogil Pass which is the lowest pass here in the Hindu Kush. Okay. It's 3,800 meter, and uh, it's not climbing. It's like it's like difficult hiking. It's like uh, because Sarhad is at 3,200. Mm-hmm. There's not too much elevation drop that you have to. But it was you know already snowy everywhere. It was uh, the first initially from from Sarhad there was about 10 centimeter of snow, a third feet of snow. Mm-hmm. And I told everybody that I'm going to this valley. I want to climb some mountains. I want to, I want to camp out in the valley. I did not tell anybody that I'm going to Pakistan. I just wanted to keep it a secret. But yeah, it was one entire day pushing, pushing the bike. Yeah. I, I was wearing the backpack too. So I, some of the bags were on the bike. Some of the load was on my back because it was the optimal uh optimal solution for pushing a bike sure thing, yeah. and uh, i pushed it through through the streams several times i had to carry through the streams my feet were frozen several times and uh yeah it was not easy at all and uh when the wheel got wet mm-hmm. because of the stream crossing i it, it started to be icy and it uh, took a lot of snow on it so i got some snow discs Instead of wheels, they, they stuck in the frame. Oh, okay. So it was even hard to push the bike because of the <laughs> snow discs in the spokes and, and between the rims and the and the hops. So it was really difficult. But when you're move. when you're going down from Sarhad, there's another river you have to cross, right? Yeah, there's another river. So there are several rivers you have to cross. It was not as easy as I thought. Okay. Yeah. It was one entire day of pushing, almost on flat, and it starts to uh, to go up really quickly. So I was camping under the uphill part. The next day, I figured out there this strap system for my sh- for my bike. I put two Ortlieb straps on my shoulder, mm-hmm. and I could carry my bike with that. So ah, first, cool. yeah. at first, I carried up my backpack. Uh, about 100 or 200 meter and I ran, ran back for my bike and I I just carried up with these straps so I had to carry two times about 30 kilograms uh, this way so I climbed the past two times it was uh, two entire days to reach the pass because the second day I got lost a little bit because I was using Google Maps which is really good, yeah. Even offline, because I was uh, traveling with Google Maps all the time, all the way until this point. I just downloaded the the maps that are important for me. Mm-hmm. So you can download the parts of the maps, and it remains in your phone. 
uh, when you're offline. Yeah. But I don't know what's the reason, but this day, just right before the pass, my phone deleted all the maps, all the map content. Oh, no. So I did not have I did not have information of my on my maps on the Google Maps. Even the saved places, which have to be available offline, they are they were deleted. Oh I wow! Did you figure out what it was eventually? I don't know. Don't I just know. don't know what it was. <laughs> so I had another maps maps me, which is offline maps. It's really bad. It's not good for hiking. It's not good for this type of mountaineering or hiking i just uh, remember the shape of the borderline between pakistan and afghanistan and i remember that part of the shape where where was the pass so after that i could get directions from that uh-huh. and I, I reached the pass very very slowly it was hot during the day it was hot like 25 degrees in the sun really hot sun well, you're really high too, so the sun's got to be extremely like yeah, extremely hot sun, and uh, I almost died on the sun, and I could not move fast. And uh, I reached the pass uh, with a backpack first, and I came back for the bike. And when the sun was setting, I reached the pass with the bike too, and I set up my tent. And it was minus twenty degree; it was like zero Fahrenheit in the night. Yeah, and uh, I spent the night. The, in the is border. that the Brogill Pass? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I spent the night on the border, and then I just descended with a with a bike. So first, I I pushed the bike about uh, two hours or three hours. I went to a field where yucks uh, were staying, and um, and I knew that if the yucks are over there, there was like a hundred yucks. If the yucks are there, there should be a trail from that point to the village to the next village okay and yeah it was true there was a trail so i could easily push the bike first and then i figure out why i'm pushing it's it's going downhill this trail is going downhill and kind of continuous so i i just started riding my bike and uh <laughs> in pakistan in a snowfield on trail made of yaks ah. so i was descending uh, with crampons on my leg and you know you can use recommend bike without putting your your legs your your feet up on the pedals you can just sit on the bike and uh, support yourself with the legs on the ground okay with the feet on the ground yeah that's what i did so and it's just I like kind of skiing with your feet almost too right yeah kind of so I descended to the first village. I thought there would be nobody over there. And there there was about about 20 people. They they started watching me when I was still up very, very far on the side of the mountain. So I descended pretty slowly and everybody was watching me in the village. Where do you do your customs entrance? Is it in the town of Brogil? Yeah, the entrance uh, was totally illegal so i had to declare myself so the plan was to declare myself uh, but in the village i did not want to tell the people that i came from from the pass <laughs> so because i i knew that there are some checkpoints on the road in this valley that there will be police definitely 
I want to declare myself in one of these checkpoints, but I did not expect that the police will come so early. So they came on the first day oh, okay. and in the middle of the afternoon. And, you know, I was, I was just afraid that they will put my bike on the, on the pickup and I have to go down by car and I could not finish the expedition with the riding because I did not use cars until this point. I did not use trucks, pickups, anything, not buses. I was riding all the way, 100%. Yeah. Except for one furry in, in Istanbul. Okay, yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. So I did not want to put up my, my bike in the car. I was too afraid. And um, I told the police that I entered from Torkan, which is the, how to say, official border pass. Mm-hmm. I, I took a car up to this valley and I started climbing just uh, 20 kilometers down from here. So I told them I, I was climbing here in this border area with my bike, which is fun. And and then I said that I, um, I'm here since like one week. And yeah, so, so the thing is that they don't really have the communication. Unfortunately, I had to lie. And um, they even do not, don't have uh, access to the internet. So they just believe me and they check my passport and visa and everything. And uh, they did not really miss a stamp, the entry stamp. So yeah, I had the visa. So actually, I, I was kind of half legally in the country. But they did not fire me out. So I could travel. I could travel. Do you have an entry stamp now in your... No. <laughs> I don't have. Awesome. <clears throat> no, I don't have. So yeah, I will just go to the uh, Vaga border, which is next to Lahore. Mm-hmm. And then I will figure out something. Maybe they will uh, deport me there. But if they deport me, I, I also want to go leave the country there. So that's the thing. It's uh, it's not a nice thing. It's not a legal thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was this voice in my head that I cannot tell the truth at the at that point at the time because uh, I was I was hundred percent sure that I was I would have been deported okay. with a car. Yeah. And now I, I could do I could do the way by bicycle. So there's basically no way to do it by bicycle as a as a European citizen or anything like that, huh? Like like the way you did it, there's no way to legally do it. Well, I think there's no way. Okay. To legally do it, I was considering. I was wondering if if I told them the truth at the first time because they they looked cool. As I'm thinking about them, they look cool, cool guys. They hosted me in the police station, so maybe they they wouldn't have deported me. Even then, they wouldn't have the stamp you need anyway, so it's not like they could help you either, right? Like, they, they yeah. might not have deported you, but no good could have come of it. If you would have told them the truth, and the only thing that could happen is you're deported. On the bright side, you're in the same place you are now with no stamp, so who knows, yeah, yeah. right? Who knows? I don't know what what would have happened. So when I w- my question to you then is: Are there any considerations people should take uh, should keep in mind when planning to cycle in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan? Um, I guess being legal would probably be a good idea. But anything else people should really consider? Yeah, in Afghanistan, uh, you have you always have to ask the locals about the current situation. Uh, because the locals always know where is the Taliban right now, where is risky in the moment. 
So asking the locals is always the best because you know I was in Tajikistan in Khorog, mm-hmm. which is about which is about eighty kilometers far from Ishkashim, which is already in Afghanistan. Yeah. And people said people said Afghanistan, Ishkashim. You you will die. You're too young. You don't go there. You will die. For sure, hundred percent. You will die, man. Don't go. Wow. And and uh, they they just did not know the reality because Ishkashim is safe. It is a safe place. Now, did you know Ishkashim was safe beforehand, or you just kind of figured it out when you got there? Well, I did not know that Ishkashim is a real safe place. But uh, I have another friend from Australia who traveled just five days before me to the same place. Ah, okay. So we met in Khorog, and he went to the Wakhan Corridor just five days before me. So he told me information. And I, I just calm down. It's good, so I can go. All right, that makes sense. I guess. <laughs> yeah. How was the rest of the ride down towards Islamabad? Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, Pakistan this way. It was the best new country experience in my life. Oh, okay. Because uh, uh, I entered from the mountains, and uh, first I just cruised along small villages. Uh, very very good vibes with super cool and relaxed people I was hosted everywhere one week long I could not spend money in Pakistan in the north of Pakistan are the people is it is it very Muslim or is it a little bit different or like are, are the women kind of hold away like you hear about in the news so here in the north they are Ismaili Muslims so this is like Calvinist in in uh, in Christianity. Okay. So they're Protestants, and um, this is uh, common in Ismaili Muslims that they are very very peaceful. And Ismaili Muslims live in the Wakhan corridor in Afghanistan. Ismail Muslims live in south of Tajikistan too. Okay. So they were so all these people who live in this area in this mountainous area of Hindu Kush and Pamir, all of them is Islam Ismaili Muslim. Okay. But in Pakistan, it was just outstanding, you know? It was extremely hospitable people who I found here. Everybody invited me to their house to, uh, to have a meal, have a, have a tea, a chai, mm-hmm. you know? And um, just, just crazy, very lovely people, very, very lovely people. So I love this part of Afghanistan, this upper Chitra Valley. I, I was also hosted by a prince in Mastuj. No way. Yeah, it was a prince. Uh, I just I was just cycling on the road in Mastuj, which was the first town I reached, and uh, <laughs> there was a man coming in front, just from the yeah coming in front, and um, he asked me where I'm going. I said I'm just going to the center of Mastuj, and then next question was, do you have an accommodation? I said no, not yet. I will figure out what to do. He said, turn back and come with me. You're my guest. And that's it. So he hosted me in his guest house, which was a huge house. And uh, he gave me food every day. Very, very good food. And when you first met him, could you tell he was somebody important? No, no, not at all. I thought he's just a wealthy guy. Maybe he has some hotels or something, but no. He's the, he's the landlord in this area. Well, okay, he has multiple hotels also in Chitra. And uh, he has the fortress of Mastuj. He is the owner of the fortress. 
Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What other things could, should people keep in mind if they're cycling up in this, uh, the Hindu Kush, um, Wakan corridor, things like that? They should know. Um, yeah, the Wakan corridor is generally very, very expensive. So if they want to put the bike on the car, they have to calculate with very, very high fares. Okay. So ride your bike, guys. It's very, <laughs> it's much better solution to ride there and back. The visa is also expensive, so it was the most expensive visa of my life, $150. Wow. But uh, people here are very, very relaxed. So you will never meet a Taliban in the Wakhan Corridor. Okay. And uh, you will never be offended. <laughs> it's I, I was the 410th uh, traveler in the Wakhan Corridor only this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So many people, so many people in the Wakhan. I, I thought that there's like 10 tourists per year, but no, there's much more. There's much more tourists. Uh, but I think it will blow, it will blow up yeah. in the next years. And I think from Sarha, uh, Sarhad coming down into Pakistan, you might be one of the first people to do that. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I did not uh, read anything about other people who did. I read about one person who, who is working for National Geographic and he's hiking around the world and he he entered Pakistan and then other pass, uh, he went more east from Sarhad. Okay. Yeah, he entered uh, in another valley on the side of Gilgit. So he, he ended up in Gilgit and he declared himself immediately. So he was deported. Mm. Yeah, he was deported uh, immediately. I only knew this person, nobody else. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so you never had any problems with locals up there? I mean, everything's very good, yeah? Everything is fine. That's awesome. Everything's fine. I had a p problems only with police. Okay. And police is bad, very bad here. So far in Pakistan, I mean, uh, like you're now in a more, way more populated area. Have you seen any other bike tours? Not yet. I just heard about two people who were in the same time in Mastuj and they they passed the Shandur Pass. Where's the yeah. Shandur Pass, yeah? The Shandur Pass connects Chitral with uh, Gilgit. So oh, these okay. are provinces. Chitral is a province and Gilgit is also a province. Yeah, yeah. And they, they are connected with the Shandur Pass, which is a pretty high pass. It's, it's as high as the Progil Pass. Okay, but you can cross the Eagle. But when you cross that pass, you're going into um, you're going in. What's it called there? The the, the contested area between India and Pakistan, right? The uh, Kashmir. No, you're going into Kashmir no. if you cross that pass. No, no, it's not Kashmir yet. It's more east. So how much how much more time do you have in uh in Pakistan before you leave? Five more days. No, four more days. Oh, that's it. You're almost done. That's it. I spend my Christmas in Amritsar. Is there one place in this entire trip that is like, wow, above everything else? Yeah, the Hindu Kush. The Hindu Kush? The Hindu Kush region, yeah. You know, I, uh, once I was, uh, I was in, still in the Wuhan, mm -hmm. and I was riding my bike, and, uh, you know, from the right hand, there were valleys opening. So every 20 kilometers, there's just a huge valley with with enormous mountains on the end. And sometimes I just arrived at the... <laughs> At the Zwali's beginnings, mm -hmm. I just, I was screaming, what the hell is this? How huge and beautiful are these mountains? 
because I have never seen a digital model before. Wow. Did you, uh, did you fly your drone much up there? Uh, not too much. No, I just flew maybe two times. Okay. Yeah. Do you think you'll come back and go maybe more into the Pamirs and stuff and, uh, and check that out or, is, or maybe another trip here into the Afghanistani part or whatever? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm coming back. I'm pretty sure. It's so amazing. Yeah, if I get the Pakistan visa next time, I'm not 100% sure that we get it. If I can get, I will come back for sure. And also to Afghanistan. It's so amazing. Dude, it's so amazing. All right. Good to know. I had a few questions with regards to what you carry. I mean, um, I know you're big into photography. What kind of photo equipment are you carrying with you? And what kind of climbing equipment do you carry with you? Almost nothing. I just carry rock climbing shoes. Yeah. And uh, a little chalk, yeah, a chalk bag too, and uh, a helmet. Yeah, my ice axe and cramping. Yeah, the cramping was very useful, and the ice axe too. So um, these are the things that I'm carrying, which are uh, connected with climbing. Nothing else. Nothing else. So when I planned to climb in the Hindu Kush with my friend, he's supposed to bring all the uh, technical equipment. Oh, okay. Are you sad it's almost over or you wish you could just keep going for some more time? I'm not really sad. Actually, I'm I'm happy and sad too. Okay. Uh, I want to finish. This is kind of, I think, pressure from inside ah. that I have to finish this, this trip. And uh, okay. So because of this pressure, I want to go to the end <laughs> but but i am sure that when i end up in dodging which is which is the place uh i want to reach yeah i'm 100 sure that i i will have i want to stay there and i don't want to go further and i don't want to go back home <laughs> yeah okay but who knows who knows uh it's still a long journey it, there will be a very difficult part because i i will go to ladakh mm-hmm and uh, that will be difficult because of the corners. But after that, there will be kind of easy job to Darjeeling, which is between Nepal and Bhutan. Yeah, Darjeeling is the place where Alexander the Toma is buried. Oh, is it? Yeah, he died over there. Are you going to cycle through Nepal or are you going to, um, to stay in India? I still don't know. Both can work out because I have double entry visa to India. Okay. Yeah, so let me see. I think both will be big fun. And uh, how much longer do you have on this trip here before it's all done? Two and a half months. Two and a half more months, yeah? Yeah. How often do you say you take like a longer break? Like, you know, now you've been in Islamabad for, you said, one week, five days, something like that? Yeah, one week. How often do do these come up where you just, you know, take a rest and like decompress from the traveling and just get Mm. into a bit of the city life? not very often so for example yeah i think it's it's about two weeks no no in istanbul i stayed four days after antalya four days yeah but before between antalya istanbul it was only one week okay but after antalya i did not take a break until tehran which which is three weeks okay so not too often but it's good to have just a break and Make sure everything's working, your bikes are fixed, and take a rest. Yeah, huh? that's a good thing. 
Well, I don't have any more questions for you. I, I can't think of anything else uh, I, I haven't asked that I, I wanted to. Oh, actually, one thing was, um, what kind of things did you have to get fixed on your bike after all this? Okay. So I didn't mention that also my front there, there was broken too. Okay. Uh, and I broke my frame. Oh, the frame broke as well, huh? So just uh, after after uh, entering Pakistan, I rode my bike on those mud roads, those dirt roads, and uh, there was a huge voice coming from the rear. And I checked out my bike, and the suspensions holding sticks, holding bars, mm-hmm. were broken. And uh, I could still ride further because these these were broken into a tube. So the other side of the tube just hold it, held oh, okay. it. So I could ride further, but my bike became a kind of a low rider. <laughs> yeah, so my crank set was very, very high and my head was very low. So I even could not see the road of the crank set. <laughs> it was very funny to ride that way. But I could fix it uh, very soon. Yeah, I could fix the mustard. Okay. And after after I just rode my bike as it is to Islamabad. Sometimes it was single speed because uh, I could not figure out a good setup for the broken derailleur. Yeah. Uh, but later I could find a very, very good solution because I have Teflon chain protector tubes. And these chain protector tubes can be uh, suspended to other parts of the bike. So they can uh, make a chain tightening as a rear derailleur does. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I suspended the chain with, with one of these uh, Teflon tubes with a rubber stick, which was kind of elastic, and uh, I could use my rear derailleur. So mm-hmm. I could ride that on with, with about seven speed or eight. Okay. And after a year, I bought new derailleurs, front and rear. I could get all, get out the bolts which were broken in the frame which are attaching the rack and yeah i think yeah i fixed my mud guards yeah i think that's it okay and uh do you carry some extra shifting cables with you as well yeah yeah good i'm carrying shifting cable and brake cable i use mechanic brakes all right anything else that i missed that you wanted to talk about before uh before we go well i think I think we've been talking about almost everything. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, we, we spoke like more than one and a half hour. Yeah, yeah, about an hour and 40-something yeah. minutes. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Victor, I mean, um, it was a long conversation, but I think it was really interesting because you did share some fascinating stories and details about parts of the world that people are really interested in and or scared to go to maybe even with Afghanistan, yeah. Pakistan and and, uh, and you know, you've even been to Iraq and I don't think that many people have cycled through even Kurdistan, you know? So yeah, yeah. really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah, all the best, um, through the last Thank you. two and a half months of your trip and, um, do stay in touch. Yeah. Same, touch. same thing here. Yeah. Maybe we'll catch up to each other somewhere in the world one day. I'm pretty sure I will be riding, uh, further. I, I mean, I will have several other bike trips too. All right. All the best and uh, have a great day. Yeah, for you too. All the best. And thank you for this conversation.
You're welcome. Thank you so much. It was, I'm, I feel appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Since uh, we last talked and recorded this podcast, uh, we're just going to do a quick little update. As I see, you were just released from prison. Uh, Victor, can you tell us what happened? When I was at the borderline, I, I wanted to exit from from Pakistan to India to stamp have a passport. And they asked me what's happening, what's going on. And, uh, you know, there was a problem for them because uh, they also checked if I have any record in their system. And I didn't have any record. And then uh, so they, they just told me that I have to face the legal consequences. Uh, they brought me back to the city and they started an investigation about me. And, and uh, they thought that I am a spy because... I have multiple cameras. I got a laptop. I got external hard drives, and uh, I took a photo of a local person, local person's driver's license. So they just really thought I'm I'm a spy, and and I spent two days in uh in the investigation office. After I had the hearing in the court, and uh, actually I ended up in the jail. I ended up in jail, and uh, they told me, my lawyer told me that uh, I would spend about five days over there, and um, he tried to, you know, simply deport me. Anyways, I told him that it's my request that I must I must uh, continue my expedition. I should not be deported. And uh, mm-hmm. he, he just didn't listen. He, he tried to, to solve my problem with deportation. So finally, my parents contacted my embassy, uh, Hungarian embassy in Pakistan, and then they uh, suspended my first lawyer, and, and they ran two, three, three lawyers, I think, uh, on my case, and um, they solved the problem with the wow. honorary consul of Hungary in Lahore, and uh, with several people, several lawyers, several. Uh, um, oh, People all all around. Yeah, there was dozens of people working on my case. Even the the ministry interior said so it was not easy. Yeah, and finally they they bailed me out. They bailed me out on Saturday, just one, one week ago, and then uh, I could finish uh, this this case uh, on Wednesday. So I was discharged on Wednesday. And where are you now? I'm in Lahore. Are you still in Pakistan? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got my visa extension. I got my order from the course that I'm free. Wow. And uh, now I'm just re- recovering because I get a terrible flu. Uh-huh. And uh, I still cannot continue my journey. But as I recover, I will go. Okay. And what was it like in a Pakistani prison for a month? Oh, yeah. Well, the conditions were not as bad as I thought. Okay. I was together with uh, people from all over the world. Uh, there were people from Canada, UK, Nigeria, Tanzania, China. So immediately I started learning languages and I started doing workout, jail workouts. Um, and uh, I tried to, to be fit all the time. Mm-hmm. What were the other people in there for? Like what kind of crimes were the other foreigners in there for? They were not murderers, so, so there was no crime in my blog. They were peaceful people, and uh, I was safe. Really. I was safe. 
but I had to present at the court. Oh, okay. And did you get sick while you were in prison or you got sick after you While got I was in prison. Okay. Yeah. That was the thing. Uh, I became sick just on the last, on the last days. Mm-hmm. Tell me, Victor, um, when you get your embassy involved and did they hire the lawyers or did your mom and your family hire the lawyers? And um, do you owe anything to the Hungarian embassy after the fact? Like what is the, the ramifications of what you did? Yeah, so the embassy hired the lawyers. No, actually, the, the Honorary Council of Hungary in Lahore oh, okay. hired the lawyers. So I owe them, actually. I owe them right now. And also, the visa extension was was uh, not very cheap, so I also owe them with that price. Okay. Yeah. And what did your family think? Yeah, my family felt that uh, that I'm in very bad conditions and that, that there is big uh, crime in jails. They were very, very upset, you know. Yeah, my ambassador told them that I'm in a jail, I'm in safety, don't worry, but they still worry too much. Okay. And uh, let's just say, if you were to do all this again, would you still have crossed the border illegally and... Um, or would you have gone around? Well, I don't know what I what I do. <laughs> I, I just I just don't know. <laughs> uh, well, it was not it was not an easy, easy thing. Yeah. Anyways, physically it was not an easy thing yeah. to cross the border over there. I don't know. I still don't know what I would do, but uh, I don't suggest people to do this. I don't uh, recommend this path because there's just simply too too much problems with it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Victor, um, I want to just thank you quickly for the update, and um, I guess we're all we're all pretty glad that you're okay and you're not stuck in prison for longer. So, congratulations on getting out. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Chris. I want to say a big thanks for all the people who who worked in my case, who worked to get me out. Absolutely. Yeah. This is pretty important because I I hope. I hope with thanks to lots of people. Yeah, no lots doubt. Lots of people around. All right. Well, on that note, uh, we will call that a wrap. I will add this into as a little ending on the podcast uh, to be released this weekend. So get well, uh, cool. get healthy, and enjoy your the rest of your cycle tour. Cool, cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I wish you a nice weekend. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. See you. See you later, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this last episode with uh, Victor. It was quite unexpected that I would have the chance to catch up with him after his ordeals trying to leave Pakistan. But that just happens to be I recorded a bunch of episodes at Christmas time while I was on school holidays and just hadn't released his yet. So that was quite interesting and I'm glad he's okay and out. In the next episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I had the chance to talk to Thibaut and Leah. They are a French and Vietnamese couple that are raising money for an NGO called Poussière de Vie, which translates to dust of life. And this NGO raises money to enable young kids from poor families to go to school throughout Vietnam. So it's really, really great. Their project, the the project that they're riding their tour under is called the Non La Project. And the Non La, for those that don't know, is the traditional Vietnamese rice farmer type hat. 
Having now covered, or when I interviewed them, having covered 11,000 kilometers, they are nearing their final destination of reaching Vietnam and cycling the length of it as the grand finale. So tune in next episode and you'll be able to learn all about Thibaut and Leah and what their tour is all about. If you like these episodes, I highly encourage you, just because it helps me out, to subscribe and to hit the like button. Give me five stars on iTunes or whatever app you use. If you so desire, that would be wicked. Otherwise, I will just keep pushing out these episodes and I hope you guys enjoy the content I'm making. You can find me at www.biketouradventures.com. You can contact me through my contacts page or you could just email me at info at biketouradventures.com. Catch me in all the social media apps under Bike Tour Adventures. Adios and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.